And today in part seven, I want to talk to you about God's view of LGBT dot 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 people. For your handout, LGBT dot 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 people. The dot 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 is because there are other groups of people that still come over underneath that same umbrella heading of LGBT. LGBT stands for lesbian, uh, bisexual, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. And uh, if this is something that you struggle with or if this is something that uh, your children or your grandchildren have ever struggled with, I want to apologize, first of all, for any Christians that um, uh, made you feel like you were less than because this was your struggle or any Christians that told you that you were um, not as good as other people or not or God, or God hates you or anything like that. God hates divorce because it hurts people, but he loves divorced people. And we have to understand that the title in the, the, the sermon has the word people in it. So we're talking about the very thing that Jesus gave his life for. We're not talking about the solar system. We're not talking about mountains and trees and animals. We're talking about people. And so I'm going to try my best for the next 30 minutes to um, share with you God's view. And I also want to share with you maybe some of the LGBT's people's view so you can kind of see both sides of it, of where we're coming from. Um, I've had a lot of questions, even from teenagers in our church about this, you know, uh, can LGBT people go to heaven? Can they serve God? Um, how does God see a transgender? Which pronoun do we call them by? All of these things I'm going to try to cover today. But there is one thing we have to agree on. We have to agree on before we get in our three points. It's the most important point of the day. Whenever you're discussing this with somebody, if you cannot agree on this, there's no use in having a conversation. And that is, what type of culture do we live in? There are three main worldview cultures, and the first one is the theonomous culture. Uh, theo meaning God, nomos meaning law, and this is a culture where every single person in the entire society is governed by what their God says to do, and there's no question. You would see this in American Indians. If you were to go to the Sioux or the Cherokee 100, 150 years ago, everyone in the tribe knew exactly how to treat people, how to treat animals, what marriage is, how to handle strife. There's no question. Their God, quote unquote, is how it runs the whole thing. They are pretty much forced to live based on their God or they die. Do we live in a theonomous culture in America? Yes or no? No, we do not. We don't. The next culture is the heteronymous culture. A heteronymous culture is like the Arabs and um, uh, over in the Middle East where the sheikhs and the ayatollahs, where there's people that lead people. And the people up here are in charge of how everyone else lives and how they eat and what marriage is like and how they treat women. And all of that is said by this group of people. They are forced by these people. These are your morals. This is how you live. And this is what these people tell you to do. Is America a heteronymous culture? Yes or no? The answer is no. We actually live in what's called an autonomous culture. An autonomous culture, auto meaning self, nomos meaning law. Autonomous culture is where every person gets to dictate for himself or herself what their morals are. You get to dictate for yourself how you live, who you marry, what you do in life. Not even the government dictates. You can murder somebody in America if you want to. You dictate your own morality here in our culture because it's an autonomous culture. That's the culture we live in, and we have to agree on that. And here's why we have to agree on this first. Because if I don't agree with you, or you don't agree with me, and I don't like the way you live, and you don't like the way I listen, I'm going to love you anyway because we're autonomous. I'm going to give you your autonomy. You don't have to believe like me to come to my church. You don't have to like me to come. You don't have to live your life like I do for you to come to my church. I'm still going to respect you. I'm still going to be kind to you. I'm still going to, I'm not going to call you names. I'm not going to try to bully you into believing like me. So we have to agree that we're in an autonomous culture. And here's why it's important. Because if I don't believe like you, how are you going to treat me? 
If you don't agree with what I have to say and you don't like the way I live my life, and if you're going to force me to believe like you and celebrate what you believe, and if you're going to try to bully me and call me names on the internet and write bad things on Facebook about me, because we don't believe the same, what you've done is you've taken us from an autonomous culture to a heteronomous culture, and now you're trying to dictate to me how I should live. We are not in a heteronomous culture because if we're going to play that game, then we'll just fight each other and bully each other until I force you to celebrate me. You force me to celebrate you. No, no, no. We're autonomous. So if you want your um, autonomous culture, you have to give me the same privilege. We have to share this. We have to say, I'm going to respect you no matter what. I'm going to be kind to you no matter what. I'm going to love you no matter what. But I still get to share my view just like you still get to share your view. So we have to make sure we all agree we're a, do you understand what I'm saying about the autonomy? You, uh, you, have to under, you have to agree on that before we dive into this conversation. Okay, three points for you today. Number one is this. I feel like I was born this way. I feel like I was born this way. Uh, if a Christian told you, nope, you weren't born that way, they were lying. Uh, let me affirm, if you really believe from the bottom of your heart that you were born a certain way, then I'm going to go along with it and say, I believe you were as well. Um, the reason I can say this um, is because we are all born into sin. Every one of us, sin is passed through the blood, and everyone, Christian, non-Christian, heterosexual, homosexual, every one of us have desires that go against God's perfect will for our life. And no you know, desire is more horrible than the other desire. We all were born into this, every one of us. That's why we need to get born again. Um, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our own heart deceives us. So there are things that you feel so strongly are the truth, but we recognize as Christians, it's not always the truth because we can be deceived. We Christians, we don't think we're better than anybody else. That's why we have the word of God, because we know we're no good. We know that we're deceived. We know that there's things we think and feel that are not the truth. Our own heart deceives us and is so perverse. Who can know his own heart? Let me prove to you that Christians can be more deceived than anyone else. 150 years ago, white people had slaves in America and they called themselves Christians and they went to church on Sunday morning. How deceived can you possibly be? You know what happened? They were raised up in that. They saw it all around them. They let culture dictate. They let society dictate their morals rather than getting their morals from the word of God. And us Christians, we know we can be deceived. And I know you're thinking, well, I would never have slaves. You don't know what you would do when everyone around you is doing something and you see it on television and everybody at school. And then you think, well, I guess it's no big deal. We can be deceived as Christians. That is why us Christians desire God's word. If our morals come from everybody around us in society and television, then our morals will change. We don't want that. We need God's word for our morality. Psalms 51 5 says we were all born into sin. Even from the very beginning, I was sinful. Let me prove to you that every one of you were born into sin. Uh, when you were a little kid, did your parents have to teach you how to take things that were not yours or did it just come natural to you? Did your parents have to teach you how to cry when you didn't get your way or did it just come natural to you? Your parents had to teach you how to say, I'm sorry. They had to teach you how to give. They had to teach you how to forgive. None of those things that are in God's word came natural for you. It was natural for you to say, give me, I want, and you cry when you don't get your way. And the reason that we understand this is because we know that our permanent identity cannot be tied to our temporary feelings. If your permanent identity and who you say you are is based on how you feel, your feelings will change. 
they'll, they'll go, listen, especially from age 8 to 18 years old, you're going to feel all kinds of things in life. I mean, all kinds of things. In fact, let me go over some things that you have felt so strongly about you were sure in the time it was actually the truth. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you at one point in your life you hated your parents or you wished they would die, right? And if your parents are in the room, definitely don't raise your hand, okay? But how about your sibling? How many of you thought, I wish my sibling was never born? At one point in your life, now don't raise your hand if your sibling's in your room with you. At one point in your life, you thought that. And you know what? You don't think it anymore because you realize it wasn't true. What about this? Um, I'll never be able to recover from this broken heart. I've been hurt so bad, I'll never find somebody like that. That was my soulmate. It hurt so bad, I'll never get over this. And guess what? You got over it, didn't you? What about, um, I'm so depressed, I wish I would die. And we've all felt that, right? I, I was reading that, um, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge is, is notorious for suicides. People jump off the Brooklyn Bridge to kill themselves. And do you know, out of all the hundreds of people that have jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge to commit suicide, 1% of those people have actually survived. Of the 1%, 100% of them all had the exact same thought right after they jumped. And the thought was this, there had to be another way. I wish I had not done this. We got to hear from the ones that tried to commit suicide, did not successfully do it. And when they jumped off, the first thought was, there, there was another way. I can't believe, I wish I had not done this. Now, if 100% of the 1% that survived thought that, imagine all the other ones that did not survive thought that. Here's what I'm trying to tell you is, they knew there was, if, in the moment, it was so real. But after they did it, they thought, oh, I wish I hadn't done this. There's got to be something else. Because the truth is never found in emotions. We were born with emotions, but we are born again not to follow those emotions. We're born again to be led by the Holy Spirit. Um, in the Bible, Naomi went through such a dark, dark time in her life. She actually changed her name. Uh, it says in Ruth 1.20, don't call me Naomi, which means joy. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. And here's why. She even blamed it on God because the Lord calls me. God made me born this way. It was God's. God did this to me. It's God's fault I'm going through this, so don't even call me by Naomi. I want you to call me Mara. You know what's interesting? God never called her by that name. God continued to call her by joy. I've had people say to me, um, if a transgender comes to church, what pronoun will you use? And I'll tell you this. I'll call you by whatever you want me to call you by until we become friends and I can share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with you and share, share how easy it is to give your life to Christ and share with you how you can be healed and so forth. But after you hear the truth, after that, from then on out, I'm not going to call you by your feelings. I'm going to call you by your destiny. If you're sad, I'm going to call you joy. If you're weak, I'm going to call you strong. If, you're, if you feel like a failure, I'm going to call you more than a conqueror. I'm not going to call you by whatever you feel after you've heard the truth. But I will befriend you and I'll love you through the entire process. But I'm just telling you, you need to be called by your destiny. Um, even the Bible it says when you feel weak, you're supposed to say that you're strong. And it says if you feel poor, you're supposed to say that you're you're rich. <laughs> At least that, that's, that's what we believe. Eight, Romans 8, 13 says this. If your flesh, which is your feelings, is your dictator. In other words, if you're led and controlled by your feelings, you're going to die. You know that when Naomi changed her name to Mara, do you know that three chapters later, God did this incredible miracle in her life and she went back to saying, okay, call me Naomi. She went back to her original name that God gave her after God. Listen, who knows what God could do? Who knows when you surrender your life what he could do? Who knows? It's amazing things he can do in your life. Um, 
So this couple, they just got married, husband and wife, young couple, and they got back from the honeymoon and the wife is wanting to cook her first meal for her husband. And so she went through her recipes from her mom and grandma. She found a recipe on honey baked ham. So she made this delicious honey baked ham and the husband just loved it. Oh, baby, you're such a good cook. You know, so great. Oh, thank you so much. So good. And then he said, you know, it was delicious. I loved it. But I'm just curious. I noticed that you cut the ends off of the ham. Why did you cut the ends off of the ham? And she said, well, I don't know. My mom always taught me how to cook ham. And so she just always did it. He said, okay, no big deal. The next day, they started thinking about it more and more and more. So they called up the mom. You know, they're on the speakerphone. And the son-in-law says, hey, mom, you know, your daughter made me the most delicious ham when we got back from our honeymoon. And it was so good. And she said she got the recipe from you. But she cut the ends off of the ham. Um, and she said, you taught her how to, why did you cut the ends off of the ham? And the mom said, well, I don't know. My mom taught me how to cook ham. So they all got on three-way and they call up grandma. Grandma, you know, your granddaughter made me the most delicious honey baked ham. It was so good, but she cut the ends off. We asked mama. She said that, you know, she learned from you and she cut the ends off of her ham. Grandma, can you tell us why do you cut the ends off the ham? And grandma laughed and said, I don't know why y'all do it. I always did it because my oven was too small. Listen, whether it was you were born that way, whether society turned it away, whether someone dared you into something, whether you were experimenting, whatever reason you're cutting the ends off the ham and living your life the way you are, I need to teach you something. Deuteronomy 30, 19 says God gives you a choice. He does not give you a choice on how to feel. Emotions come and emotions go, but he gives you a choice on the actions you take in life. And it's really important you hear me when I say this. When someone tells you that you have to live by how you feel, when someone tells you that you are what you feel, when someone tells you that you have to act on what you feel, here's what they've done to you. They've done the most destructive thing in your life. They have stolen the most precious gift that God's given you other than his son. They've stolen your free will. They have turned you into a robot and they have taken your free will from you when they tell you that you have to live based on how you feel. Here's where they're saying you have no choice. You cannot choose how you're going to, you cannot choose if you're going to serve God. You cannot choose if you're going to have sex or not. You cannot choose. You can't choose the action. You know what? Because this is how you feel. You got to do it. They're saying your free will's gone. How, why would we ever do that to a child or anyone that we love? Tell you, you can't choose. No, it's all about you. Everybody has a choice what they're going to do. Whether they're going to obey God, you have a choice. You might not can choose your emotions all the time, but you have a choice in your actions. So point number two is this. I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Don't you want me to be happy, John Paul? Yes, I want you to be happy. I want my kids to be happy. I want to be happy. I want everybody to be happy. But as a parent, when you have small children, you have to teach your children something that's more important than being happy, and that is obedience. And sometimes they don't understand why, because when I took my kids when they were little to get their vaccinations when they were children, they were not happy getting stuck with a needle. Nothing made them happy about that, but they had to obey me because I was the parent. They didn't understand it. But I know that I'm wiser than my children when they were younger. I'm more experienced. I'm their parent. God's going to hold me accountable. So I need to teach them above being happy. I need to teach them how important it is to be obedient. I want my children to go to school even if it doesn't make them happy. I want my children to work hard, even if it doesn't make them happy. I want them to remain faithful at whatever job they have until God opens up a door or removes them, even if it doesn't make them happy. I want them to give, even if it doesn't make them happy. 
As Christians, our point of view, we believe that we obey God because we trust as the good, good father he is that he's more wise and more powerful than we are. So even if we don't understand, even if we don't like it, even if it does not make us happy, we obey anyway. At least we strive to. We forgive people even when we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. I don't want to forgive them. They hurt me way too bad. But God, because I trust you, I'm going to try my best. Even if it takes me 20 years, I'm going to forgive them every single day. I'm not happy about it, but I'm going to do it anyway. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, You were bought with the blood of Jesus. Therefore, honor God with your, with your body. With your body. Jesus said um, that God created two genders, male and female. And God did that as well in Genesis chapter 1. He confirmed that as well, two genders. But I want to say this to you. If, um, if there's a gap between who you feel you are and who you think you're supposed to be, if there's a gap between who you feel you are and um, how you were born biologically, if there's a gap between how you're born biologically and what you want to be, if there's a gap between that, I want you to hear that God knows exactly how you feel because an incorruptible God who cannot die, who's all powerful, who could call down a legion of angels to come and rescue him at any moment. He put himself in a human body that could bleed. This all powerful God of the universe put himself in a human body that could feel pain. So much pain that when he was about to go to the cross, he sweat great drops of blood through his pores because the anxiety was so horrendous. God knows what it's like to be in a body that just doesn't seem to fit who he is. He knows what it's like to feel like, oh, it would make me so happy to call down these angels to get me out of here. It would make me so happy not to go to the cross today. God, if there's any other way, can you remove this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus was in that body that did not quite fit with who he is, he prayed and asked God to give him the supernatural strength to obey in his body, even if it did not make him happy. Matthew 16, 24 said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves denying yourself is actually part of the christian walk so we believe so can a homosexual serve jesus yes can a transgender serve jesus yes any person can choose to serve jesus no matter what you've done what you're going through or what you're battling with we can all choose to serve god and i know when you hear transgender and there's there's even there's transvestite they deal with where a man dresses like a woman and vice versa even the bible says it's not right to do can people serve god they can serve god but i, I want to just just so you can hear the other side when it comes to transgender and changing your body and i, I know christians are very 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 much um, strongly opinionated in that area i wonder how many christians even in this room have made ungodly decisions concerning your body since you've been saved. I wonder if we could look at your arteries. Could we see that you made some decisions because you wanted to be happy and eat that Big Mac? Or you wanted to be happy and eat those two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts? I wonder if your body is really what it's supposed to be. Had you honored God with your body all those years? Just to help you hear another side, it's a real struggle for people, a real struggle. Um, do you know that, um, that there have been thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths um, due to wars and horrible rapes and murders and suicide bombers all because one man decided to sleep with a woman he was not married to? 
All because one man, let me say this, did not honor God with his body. Even though it's tough, you know, of course, we try to pray for grace to do the right thing. Do you know who slept with somebody they shouldn't have? And because of that, probably a million people or more have died over the past 6,000 years. Who? Abraham, the father of our faith. Do you know that every Muslim in the world, Hindu, they've all come out of his firstborn son, Ishmael? They wanted a baby so bad, so in Genesis 16, 2, his wife said, sleep with my maid, Hagar, so she can have the child for me. And Abraham said, oh, I guess I'll take one for the team, you know, if you really want me to, I'll sacrifice, you know. Abraham couldn't... <laughs> Anyway, so he didn't honor God with his body. He had Ishmael, which means man of war. Then they had their child between his wife, Sarah, and Abraham, which was Isaac. They fought, and to this day, their descendants are still fighting and killing people. All because one man decided to sleep with somebody he was not married to. The great Henry Nowen is a professor. He was a professor of psychology at Harvard University. And um, he, was, he was an atheist, didn't believe in God. And one day he goes to Russia. True story. He went to the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. He was passing through the paintings and the different sculptures, and he came across Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. The prodigal son. And Henry decided to just sit there. He was mesmerized by this painting. He sat there for 10 minutes, 30 minutes, two hours, more than three hours. His eyes were fixed on this painting of the prodigal son. He could not move his eyes. In those three hours, he gave his life to Jesus Christ and got saved. He goes back to Harvard University. He resigns from his prestigious position, and he decides to spend the rest of his life taking care of the mentally ill, impoverished areas. Great men, they, they called him a saint in his day. At the end of his life, he wrote a book and he disclosed in his book that he was dispositionally a homosexual his entire life. But he said this, he said, I decided to never fulfill that desire for the sake of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes we're asked to renounce our desires for the sake of Christ and pray for his sufficient grace to help us obey. It's tough for all of us. Every heterosexuals is tough for every single one of us. Um, let me lighten the mood for a little bit, if that's okay. Y'all mind if I lighten the mood? <laughs> you can cut the tension in here with a knife. I need to pick on somebody. I need like a volunteer. So um, I'm going to do uh, Vicki Jenkins. I'm gonna use, I need a, I need a, I need a hundred dollar bill. I need you to give me a hundred dollar bill. You have a hundred dollar bill? Are you sure? I need one for this sermon prop. I need a hundred dollar bill. It can't come from somebody else. I need her to give it to me. You, don't, you sure you don't have one? Do you have your Bible with you? Can you open up your Bible? Turn to page 383. In the book of Psalms, toward the middle of the Bible. Keep going. Can you give me that $100 bill, please? Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Okay. Do you know why I asked her for a $100 bill? Because I knew she had one. Do you know how I knew she had one? I put it inside of her Bible before church when she wasn't looking. My point, I'm keeping it too, by the way. You can close your mouth. I'm keeping it. Here's my point. God will never ask you to do something without already giving you the ability to do it. He'll never ask you to do something. As a saved Christian, as a believer, 
His Holy Spirit inside of you will always give you the strength to do what he's asking you to do, whether it feels good or not. Let me just say, just before I get to number three, just so you know, you don't have to have sex. I'm just telling you, if you're not married or you battle homosexuality, you don't have to have sex. You're not having sex right now. Now, I can't speak for the 11 o'clock service. We don't know what they're doing, but... You don't have sex when you're at Bible study. You don't have sex when you're at short group. You don't have sex in church. Just do more of those things, right? If that's your bad, just do more of those things. You don't have sex in music practice. You don't have sex in Sunday school. You don't have sex at Walmart. Just go to Walmart. Ride the little scooters around Walmart. You know, do whatever. Okay, point number three is this. What do I do? Okay, John Paul, you're telling me, because, you know, you say, well, I, I, you don't know what it's like. But listen, I know what it's like to have heterosexual desires that go against the word of God. I know what it's like to battle immorality. So what do I do? You're telling me that God expects this. And so how do I change? If you're telling me that this is what God wants, how am I supposed to change? How do I change? Like, listen, I'm not asking you to change at all. I'm asking you to let God change you. Now, he might not change you in every area. He might change you 40 years from now. He might change you 40 minutes from now. I'm asking you to learn how to walk with God like all of us do. And every one of us fail. Every one of us fail. The Bible says the righteous will get back up every time. We're not righteous because we don't fail. We're righteous, we're righteous because we get back up every time we do fail. So every one of us fail. So there's three points I want to end with today on what do I do. Here's the first thing. 3A is this. Understand salvation. Understand salvation. I have a whole series back there in grace to help you. But Ezekiel 36, 25, God says this. I'll make you clean from everything that's defiled you. It is not your job to clean yourself. Do not try to clean yourself and then come to church. And you got it backwards. You come to God just like you are. He will clean you. Watch this. It's a really good deal. And I'll give you a new heart. Good deal. That's new desires, new passions. In other words, he'll give you the desire to want to serve him. You still may battle other desires, but when you get saved, he changes your heart to actually want to serve him. I'll give you a new mind. I'll put my spirit in you and see to it that you follow my commands. Then you will be my people and I will be your God. I do not have a problem with LGBT dot 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 people. I have a problem with people who call themselves Christians and don't want God to change them. That's what I have a problem with. I don't care what you are or what you battle. If you say I'm a Christian, that means no matter how filthy you are, no matter what's going on, no matter what you desire, you have this greater passion for God to change you every single day for the rest of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. When you're saved, it's because you actually have a desire. I want God to change me. You get in the Word and you find out unforgiveness is a sin. You know what, God, I need you to It may take 40 years to get that unforgiveness out of your heart, but you have the desire for God to change you. God loves you so much, he will take you just like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like you are. He loves you so much, he'll take you just like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like that. To leave. People say, well, sin is sin. That's true, but you have to understand every sin has different consequences. If I drive five miles over the speed limit, it's breaking the law. If I break into someone's house and steal their belongings, it's breaking the law. One has a greater consequence. And out of all the sins in the Bible and all the different immorality in the Bible, the greater, the most negative consequences come to two different types of people. Prideful people and those that practice immorality on a regular basis or living in sin. Like they, they have no desire to change. They just want, they just, they said, God, I'm going to do whatever I want. And since you love me, I can do anything I want to do. Those two things actually have incredible consequences biblically. But yes, sin is sin. Second thing is this. Attend a New Testament Bible-based church. 
I'm going to read a scripture that you're not going to like. You're not going to like it, but let me explain. Okay, you're not going to like it, but let me explain. First Corinthians 5.11 says this. I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian and is sexually immoral. It is not our job to judge outsiders, but it is certainly our job to judge those who are members of the church and who are sinning in these ways. So let me explain this to you. If you say, you know, I want to go to a church that doesn't judge, you're actually going to a cult. Biblically, that's a cult. It's not a church. A New Testament church does judge. It is what we're called to do. Now, a judge does two things. A judge determines sentencing, like condemnation, death, you deserve this. And a judge says this is guilty or not guilty. This is right or wrong. God does the sentencing part. But our job as the church is to say this is right and this is wrong according to God's word. Because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Is the world going to tell you? Is, is your public school going to tell you? No, the children's church back there, they're being told, here's what God says is good for you. Here's what God says is bad for you. If the church doesn't do that, who's going to do it for them? So it is, it is our job to judge members of the church. And we do it loving and we do it kindly. And we realize that you're falling or that you're failing or that your life's going the wrong direction. We come in there and we lift you up and we help you. And we say, let me help you get to where you need to be. What can we do? How can we pray? What group can we get you in? If I battle unforgiveness, I don't want to go to a church where the pastor says God loves you and it'll be okay one day. I want to go to a church that says unforgiveness is not God's best plan for your life. Here's how you can apply the word of God for God to change your heart. And if it takes me 50 years, it's going to take me or it takes me 50 days or 50 minutes, but I'm going to learn how to forgive that person. Because somebody hurt me, a man hurt me many years ago, and I've been wanting to kill him for years. I hated him when I saw him. I hated him. And if I went to a church where I was just feel good, come and go when you're done, I would never be healed from that today. The only reason I'm healed is because I kept getting in the word and I kept preaching about forgiveness and I kept talking about forgiveness. And I kept saying, God, help me. I need you to help me every single day before I go to bed. Help me forgive him. When I wake up, help me forgive him. I had to hear what God's word said about it because it's not okay to live with unforgiveness. It's not. Because it affects your relationships, it affects your mind, it affects your peace, it affects your creativity. All these things are affected by my heart being filled with this sin. The character of God is diminished the further we draw the line away from his word. And this is why our church, we've actually lost very talented people in our church because they chose to live in sin. And I wanted their help and I needed them up here, but they chose not to live the way God wanted them to. They chose not to ask for repent. They chose not to get. And listen, when I go to people, I say, listen, I'll give you a hundred tries. Do you want God to change it? Now nah, I'm okay. Well, then what am I supposed to do with you? How, you can't. And, and you, you, no matter what you believe, attend a church. But then when you join a church, there's, there's added, there's, the higher you go with affiliation, there's added responsibilities. You know, if you teach school, you got to get a degree. If you teach at Harvard, you need another degree. So you, you keep drawing the line higher. If you're in leadership, if you lead a Bible study, there has to be a standard. We got to have a New Testament standard. Not to hurt anybody, but to help everybody. Okay, point number three. Last one is this. Study the word every single day. Every single day. Every day. Let me tell you, I don't study the word every day because I'm a good spiritual man of God. I study the word every day because I'm a horrible, wretched worm of a sinner. That's why I study the word. When I take time off, like a week or two off, and I don't really get in my word as much, you don't want to hang around me. I am so loud and arrogant and impatient and rude and give me my check. I got to go. I'm done talking. There's no, there's no peace because I'm not in the word. Christians believe the word gives us strength, it gives us wisdom, it gives us peace, it gives us truth. That's why we get, the Bible says in Psalms 19.7, it restores our soul, our mind, will, and emotions. And all through the week you're watching TV and you're hanging out with this group and you're living this way, your soul's being torn from you. 
Every time you sleep with somebody you're not married to, it's taking a piece of your soul and attaching it to that person. And then you go finally find somebody you want to get married and you wonder why everything's so unhealthy. And it's not because you spent all these years giving pieces of your soul to somebody else. So you've got to get into a church that really preaches the word and gives you the, the way to understand and study the word in groups to get in. Because the word is the only thing that restores your soul. I'll close with this. Um, it seems like human nature pursues immorality to be happy and fulfilled. We want to, you know, whoever we're sexually attracted to, we pursue them because we want to be happy. Or, you know, in, in high school, you want to sleep with this person, sleep with that to make you happy. Or as a young adult, you want to live together and see if that works out. And all these things to make you happy. And I'm telling you from a, a, an experienced, immoral person, you'll never find true fulfillment, happiness, and joy without surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. And you can keep trying what you want to try, but it's not going to work. And you can try it to the day you die, but it's not going to work. There was this um, true story. An African farmer back in the 1800s lived on a little farm that he and his family had owned. And he was the last one left of his family. And he started hearing these rumors about people in Africa finding diamond mines and becoming filthy rich. So he sold his little farm and he took all of that money and spent the rest of his life traveling the continent of Africa to find his treasure, which he never found. He ended up dying an old, dejected, impoverished man. Meanwhile, the family that he sold his farm to, they were walking across the hills one day, coming up to a stream, just kind of admiring their new property. And the wife looks down and she sees what seems to be a large crystal buried partly under the ground. And so true story, she digs it up and washes it off and she puts it on the mantle of their fireplace, just as a conversation piece. A few years went by and they had a visitor at their house one day. And when the visitor walked into the living room, they nearly fainted. They discovered that this quote unquote crystal was actually the largest diamond ever recorded in history. My point is this. <laughs> Stop wasting time searching the world for fulfillment when the most valuable source in the universe can live inside of you. You'll never be fulfilled without surrendering your life to Christ. Amen.